radical responsibility, um, I, I usually speak of it as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face day in and day out. This is primarily about ourselves and how can we move forward in our life. And the, really the only place I have any significant influence is with my own state of mind and my own behaviors. At some point I got to take a deep breath and go, okay, maybe this situation really sucks, but what can I do? You know, maybe my boss is a complete jerk. Okay, what can I do in my own life self-interest to move my life forward, to move my job forward? And as soon as we shift into that question, it opens up the whole realm of possibility because there's always things we can do. There's a million different ways we can approach anybody or approach any situation. That gets me back into possibility-based thinking, solution-based thinking. Acharya Fleet Mall, PhD came of age in the late 60s and discovered Buddhism as part of the countercultural search for authenticity. After college, he moved to Peru, where he encountered the writings of his first teacher, Trumpa Rinpoche, and the opportunities of living outside the system by smuggling drugs. He moved to Colorado to study with Trumpa, becoming one of his primary attendants, but continued to live a dual life as a Dharma practitioner and a drug user and smuggler. His karma caught up to him in 1985, and he faced the choice of going on the run or turning himself in. He turned to Trumpa for advice, and he recommended that Fleet face what he'd created, which began the pain and chaos of long-term incarceration. Again faced with the choice of hunkering down and just trying to get through the time, or finding a way to help others with their suffering, Fleet began to develop his practice along the ethical teachings of the precepts. Four years into his 14-year sentence, Fleet founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute, which has become a leading provider of mindfulness programming for both prisoners and criminal justice professionals. Today, Fleet is a senior lineage teacher in the Shambhala community and is a Dharma successor of Roshi Bernie Glassman. He is a senior priest in the Zen Peacemaker community assisting with the Auschwitz Bearing Witness Retreats and co-founded the Rwanda Bearing Witness Retreats. Fleet is the author of Dharma in Hell, the prison writings of Fleet Mall, and the recently released Radical Responsibility. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Fleet, I recently watched a video of you, I think you were probably in D.C. Uh, giving this talk, and it was a part of it, or at least the title it seemed, was Dharma at the Edge, which is providing Dharma opportunities or the, allowing people who are in marginal spaces to encounter the Dharma. You do a lot of work with uh, people uh, in prison, inside and outside of prison, but a big part of your teaching seems to be with people in prison or incarcerated. And I'm wondering 
how you find the teaching or the guidance that you give students. Uh, if there's anything that is particularly different in a population that's incarcerated and a population that is outside, just as they, as you try to guide them on the on the path of liberation, if is there something that is sort of saliently distinct? Mm-hmm. Well, it it really depends. Um, you know, the core of the practice uh, is very similar. If the prisoners are coming to a group with the expectation this is a Buddhist meditation group, a faith-based Dharma group of some kind, then I would present the teachings in very traditional ways and the practice in traditional ways. Really not that differently than I would present it to people on the outside. But a lot of the prison work is actually more secular, and it's more mindfulness-based prison work of one kind or another. In both contexts, though, uh, there are two things that I think are important. One is that just having the awareness that with people who are incarcerated, there is very likelihood a background of uh, trauma in their childhood or their adult life. Uh, the fact of being incarcerated, especially for any uh, significant length of time, is in itself traumatic. It's a traumatic environment to live in. And then many people, uh, unfortunately, our prison system and our criminal justice system very disproportionately impacts people of color, and uh, extremely so. And and so uh, there can be a lot of uh, historical generational trauma as well, racialized trauma. So just knowing that that's in the background, um, and in a lot of my work today is in uh, through our prison organizations and our teacher trainings through the Engage Mindfulness Institute has to do with training teachers in trauma-informed approaches to sharing the practice. And a lot of this has to do with uh, creating safety for people, giving people lots of options, using invitational language rather than some of the traditional, more directive command-type language. And then the other thing is when I go into prisons, I, I really want, uh, whether I'm presenting a secular or a Dharma-based program, I, I really want prisoners to get two things. One is I want them to get that I get that many of them were essentially programmed to end up in prison by their childhood experiences. Many of them just grew up in hellish experiences. And for many of them, they're fortunate they're alive or um, that they've survived this far. And it's and it would almost be a miracle that they didn't end up in prison. I also want them to understand that I understand that there's tremendous uh, uh, injustice in our criminal justice system and tremendous uh, racial injustice and so forth. The other thing that I want them to get in that I try to communicate as skillfully as I can is that their future and their destiny uh, their ability to actualize their life in any way, shape, or form that's going to be a positive direction for them has everything to do with the decisions they're making right now, right where they are. But I also want them to, to get some idea that they can start working with their own mind and using meditation, mindfulness, using the Dharma and the principles of the Dharma to reshape their life and create a different future for themselves, and that that's completely up to them. Nobody can do that but them. You know, one of the things I, I talk with people about when they're getting ready to start on the journey of, of meditation is that a lot of the, the thoughts that you've been filling your life <laughs> trying to avoid and 
the level of trauma that you're you're having to you're inviting people to sit with. Uh, I, yeah, I just really hadn't thought about what you're really inviting them to do when you're when you're saying, okay, we're going to go sit and meditate, and you're going to deal with these thoughts, which you know, for a lot of people, are like, oh, you're just a you know. <laughs> You're just not enough, or you know all of these things that we deal with just as a human being. But then, uh, when you when you're incarcerated, there's an, a, right. another level mm-hmm. stuff that you've done, but also stuff that's been done to you that that created the situation. Absolutely, and you know that's why I, personally I try to go into prisons with as much humility as I can, and and um, and I train a lot of prison volunteers and and people that work in prison, so really encouraging them to have as much humility as they can in, in terms of what's really needed and how to support people and, you know, be not be uh, tiptoeing around people, be willing to give people real skills and, and share the distinctions from the Dharma and, uh, and more secular mindfulness traditions and really offer new ideas, fresh ideas and practices and skills and distinctions that can really help people. But really letting the the prisoners in this case teach us how to do that in a way that is actually helpful. But we're all dealing with all the stuff from the human condition, uh, and life is traumatic. Uh, but a lot of us deal with much more severe forms of trauma than others. And then for a lot of us, uh, we're dealing with that severe trauma just because of the color of our skin or where we're born or the zip code we're born into. And, and the other thing is during my time in prison, uh, you know, my experience of uh, of the men I was in prison with, um, you know, when, the minute you're, you're, you're arrested for any kind of offense, there's a whole sort of shaming process that unfolds and whether it's by default or design, you know, you could argue, but it's a, it's a very much a shaming process. And, and, you know, as you go through being prosecuted, tried sentenced, and so it's just, it's just demonization and shaming. And, um, so by the time people land in prison, they they almost feel like they're being buried under a mountain of the shame and demonization, and and so I think most people just in order to sort of survive, you know, just psychologically survive, they tend to, um, you know, go into denial, focus on their own victimization, um, and and armor themselves with often a lot of anger and bitterness just to deflect all this negativity that's coming their way. And I think that's a very natural human thing. And it's unfortunate because for me, uh, you know, for me personally, my, my path of transformation, you know, I've been ongoing even before I ended up in prison. But in prison, a lot of it had to do with really coming to grips with the harmful behavior I've been caused, that I've been involved in as being involved with drugs and incredibly selfish decisions I'd made, the impact that that had on my son and my family. But I think for many prisoners, it's very hard to get there because they're, they're, they're just caught in, you know, trying to protect themselves from this avalanche of shame and demonization coming their way. And it makes it very hard for people to contact any genuine sense of a regret or remorse and gets them very caught, caught up in the narrative of their own victimization. It makes it really difficult for, uh, I think many incarcerated people that take the journey that really would lead them to further transformation because they're just in survival mode. Yeah, the shame, you know, I, so just to tell you a little bit of my story, when I was 19, I was arrested for a couple of felonies, breaking and entering and grand larceny. And 
um, I never actually served time for those, but they, you know, they ended up on um, a record and the, (laughs) what you said about whether it's intentional or whether, you know, that's just, you know, part of the system. Uh, I'm of the mind that it's, you know, the system is intentionally shaming. Um, But, and I try to explain to people that the idea of shame as it relates to that, here I am an incredibly privileged person. And, uh, you know, I even have this little card, this global entry card that lets me skip the line when I go through customs now. But every time I go through customs, I get an X, right? So I have to go see somebody. And it's really just to remind me, right? Because they wave me through every time. It's just a reminder within the system of, by the way, you're bad. And um, Mm -hmm. I went to college in Canada. Every time I crossed over the border, I would get pulled into the back room. Uh, Again, no conviction, right? Just these arrests. And I would be pulled into the back room and everybody in the back room would be black. And then there was me. And the only thing that they had done was be black. And I had actually committed a crime. (laughs) And, and it was, and they didn't do anything. All they did was want me to admit that I'd done it. And this is somebody who has an otherwise a very privileged life. Right. And then you add, Mm -hmm. I think we're just not really honest as a culture about the amount of shame that exists in this part of our thing. Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. And I, I completely agree. It's at least in part by design. Um, and in fact, what the, the philosophy that underlies our whole criminal justice system is, is a, a really, um, to me, a very toxic and flawed idea called positive uh. shaming which I think is an incredible example right. of an oxymoron because I think shame is just a very toxic. Shame is basically the emotion we experience when love is withdrawn, connection was withdrawn, the threat of being kicked out and shamed. You don't belong. You're not wanted. And it's a very toxic emotion. And we all get our dose of it in childhood and some of us a lot more than others, tragically, but we all get our dose of it one way or another. It's part of the human condition. And, uh, but the idea is, that undergirds our criminal justice system, and it goes back to the kind of Calvinist roots of our Judeo-Christian society of, of uh, you know, the flawed nature of humanity, and that, that human beings absent some threat, uh, coercive threat of incarceration or shaming or what have you, will not behave well. And, uh, and that, that it's actually it's necessary to have that for human beings to behave well. And I think this is an incredibly dangerous and flawed idea that creates that's really one of the most damaging concepts in our in our Western society and really drives what I would say is a very shame and blame based culture that doesn't just go through our uh, our prison system, but is just throughout the whole society and our education system and 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 so much of of, uh, our culture altogether. You know, the title of your new book, Radical Responsibility feels very almost like a call to wake up in this culture that we have right now which feels um it it feels like we're looking for every way not to take responsibility and 
you know, there's a lot of blaming of, you know, who did this or regardless of which side you're on, you know, if you're progressive, it's all Trump and McConnell and blah, blah, blah. And if, you know, if you're on the other side, then it's, you know, what Clinton and whatever, Elizabeth Warren and whatever. Um, and then when you're within the system, it's like either you're trying to work for the prisoners or you're working for the guards. <laughs> And what does it mean for you, just as a Dharma practitioner, really? Like, and I loved that comment you had about not just the honing of the mind, but honing of the ethical life. What does this mean for you to be radically responsible in this in this day? Mm-hmm. Radical responsibility. Um, I, I usually speak of it as voluntarily embracing one hundred percent responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face day in and day out, internally within ourselves and externally in the world around us. And that, and that emphasizing that this has nothing to do with blame. It's not about blaming others, it's not about blaming ourselves, it's certainly not about blaming victims. But rather it's focusing my me making the choice to focus my energy in the only place where it can really do any good, which is <laughs> with myself. Because if I'm convinced, if I'm upset about something, unhappy about something, and I'm convinced it's caused by somebody else. It's somebody else's fault, which may feel very compelling in the moment. But nonetheless, I can't control other people, right? Other people are not controllable. We may, we try, but we know other people are not controllable because we're not controllable. And so if I really am convinced that I'm unhappy and it's your fault, for example, then I just gave you power over my internal state because I don't get to be happy until you change, or I don't get to not be upset until you change. And we give away our power all the time like that. And we waste our energy in feeling conflict and blaming. And, and it may feel good in the moment, but it's, you know, it's really the toxic world of our emotional life where we get these emotional payoffs by being right or holding on to resentments or justifying our own behaviors or blaming others. And you know, we get all these little emotional payoffs, but it just keeps us mired in, in our own victim narratives. And it, it doesn't go anywhere except produce conflict and, and so forth. And and really, the, for me, the blue sky of life is where, you know, rather than projecting all my stuff onto others, I'm just owning my own circumstances, living in the question, what can I do? Even if a circumstance that comes my way, you know, most, a lot of time I can see I had something to do with either creating it, contributing to it, allowing it, promoting it. I have some relationship to it. But in some cases, it may, may really feel like it just fell out of the sky and landed on my head. And it may be a horrible thing that should never happen to anybody. But once it has happened to me, it's in my life, and I, I'm at a choice point. I'm either going to let it take me down, or I'm going to find the most creative way I can respond to keep moving forward with my life. And that may include seeking justice, seeking validation for the fact that I've been harmed. But doing it from that self-empowered place, uh, rather than purely from the, the like uh, that, that triangulization of, of victim, persecutor, rescuer, and Stephen Carbon's drama triangle, which I find incredibly insightful and useful tool, you know, if I can do it instead from this place of ownership, it, it makes a huge difference. And, and again, this is not telling about going to other people who've been victimized in some way and saying you need to get off that and be responsible. Not at all. They they need what they need. And, and it's not for me to say what they need. And But I would hope at least not to get in the way of their somehow moving forward in their life at some point. But really, the, this is primarily about ourselves and how can we move forward in our life? And the, really the only place I have any significant influence is with my own state of mind and my own behaviors. So rather than, and it may be completely normal to sit around and kvetch for a while and feel, and that's okay, but at some point I gotta take a deep breath and go, okay, 
maybe this situation really sucks, but what can I do? You know, maybe my boss is a complete jerk. Okay, what can I do in my own life self-interest to move my life forward, to move my job forward? And as soon as we shift into that question, it opens up the whole realm of possibility because there's always things we can do. There's a million different ways we can approach anybody or approach any situation. That gets me back into possibility-based thinking, solution-based thinking. And so if I, if I do that and make that shift, and then if I also work on integrity and accountability, I do what I say I'm going to do. If I'm willing to be open, real, genuine. So, you know, so if we have a personal and professional relationship, and I don't blame you for my stuff, I own my own stuff. If, I'm, if I keep my agreements with you and I'm willing to be open, real, and genuine with you, what does that create between us? It creates trust. And we say trust is the ground of authentic relationships. So this world that I call the empowerment zone is the world of authentic relationships and possibility and, 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 and really moving forward in our life. It's really the blue sky of human life. And then you have the alternative to that, which I call the drama zone, which is all based on blaming and holding on to resentments and justifying ourselves and all, all the victim narratives and, and getting caught up in that drama, that triangulization of the never-ending drama triangle that just spins endlessly once it forms. Uh, and it's all fear-based and survival-based. And it's, you know, the shadow uh, aspect of our human condition. And, and it's not to demonize that because we all end up there. It's normal. It's, we're set up for it. But we're also set up with the capacity to rise above it. And when I was listening to you tell your story about the moment where, you know, you'd ask Trumpa for advice on what you should do. Should you go on the run or should you face, you know, what you what you created through drug use and drug smuggling? And he said, uh, face it. You actually used the word courage about how to um, how to find the courage to walk into that. And here you were not just going to prison, but leaving a your son who was nine at the time. Um, and, and there was so much there. And I'm, I'm curious about how the Dharma supported you at that time. It, and, I, and I say this because, and you've, you've said this actually, so much of Western Buddhism really focuses on either different concentration states or awakening and you had this moment where you said, yeah, I need to work on the, on ethical living. And, and it really struck me because I feel like so much of the language around life as a Buddhist practitioner in the United States anyway, is about this sort of training of the mind. All the while, you know, our culture is <laughs> not, not behaving. I mean, we might have really deep samadhi, but something is going awry in our culture where nobody's taking responsibility. And so I'm wondering if there's a, a dharmic perspective on, you know, right life, right action, right living. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that shift really happened once I found myself in prison. Um, when I was facing in indictment and prosecution and so forth uh and they were threatening me with life in prison i was pretty freaked out right. as you can imagine uh what did help me get through that period i kept practicing and that you know I, I don't know how i would have gotten through that part of my life without continuing to practice and and uh um so i went through the whole trial and prosecution which was a quite a nightmarish journey and uh but once i finally landed in prison and I was really, you know, I was initially deeply 
impact, devastated by what I'd done to my son and the realization of that. And I was sentenced to 30 years with no parole, and I thought I was going to be 65 when I got out. It took me a while to figure out how the good time worked. And then on my appeal that it took three years to go through the courts, they knocked off one count. So that went from 30 to 25. And and with the good time, initially, I would have had to serve 18 and a half if I stayed out of trouble on 30 and then 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble on 25. And that's that's how it played out. Unfortunately, today, since 1987, they don't have the prisoners don't get anywhere near that amount of good time. Uh, you would serve most of your sentence. But anyway, it took me a while. But when I first got locked up, I thought I was going to be 65. I was 35. I thought I was going to be 65 when I got out. And I was, uh, at any rate, you know, I was just, I became radically dedicated to turning my life around and doing something positive with it and leaving my son a better legacy than just his dad went to prison or his dad died in prison. And and very quickly, I realized that a big thing that had been missing from my Dharma path had been that focus on the ethical principles of the Dharmic path. And I would say that, you know, even, you know, you could think about, as you did, and I've communicated that focus on awareness and mind and, and you know, cultivating meditative experiences and states, which I and a lot of people have been in, in, mostly interested in the 60s and 70s and so forth. And uh, and given short shrift to the to the ethical principles, but the ethical principles are another part of mind training. It's another part of training our mind, especially. I mean, from the from the basic Ghana perspective, it's it can be more sense of renunciation and working with precepts. And uh, but from the Mahayana tradition, you know, the whole training the mind, uh, Shanti Deva, and the whole Bodhisattva Vajracharya, and the whole all the gradual paths uh, teachings, and uh, you know, is all is all uh, even a higher ethics, but it, but it is a way we, we actually train our mind and I think retrain our being and retrain our neurobiology even to have a greater basis for an ethical life. Um, and, uh, and the two work together really well because ultimately I, I think, um, uh, you know, I think the two are required for genuine, uh, genuine liberation. Uh, but I realized that that was a key for my time in prison that two, if I was going to be able to do anything useful in prison and be of any benefit in that world, uh, two things had to happen. That was going to be grounded in my actual practice that I had to just really focus on practice. And I did, I was just absolutely dedicated to serious daily practice. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing was to ground my life there in the basic precepts of the Dharma of non-harming and the, the other, the lay precepts. I eventually took monastic vows and followed the monastic precepts while I was in prison. But, I, I knew that those two things were going to be, I just instinctually knew it, that that was going to be the basis of being able to do, you know, I found myself, you know, I thought, boy, I've really, I've done it. <laughs> I managed, I, you know, I conspired with uh, whatever to get myself really my back up against the wall. And it became absolutely clear to me the only way forward was both embracing a deep commitment to daily, significant daily practice, hours of practice. And so that's that's how it played out. and and. Uh, and it really, it transformed my life in a huge way, and it really became the basis of everything I've been doing since. So in addition to your work with Trumpa and, and being a, a lineage holder in that tradition, you're also, interestingly enough, a, a lineage holder in uh, the Zen tradition with Bernie Glassman, Roshi Bernie Glassman, and you've been really involved with the bearing witness retreats, the street retreats, but also the retreats in Auschwitz and and in Rwanda. Is can you 
tell me a little bit about how you started going in that direction, uh, working with Bernie Glassman, and then also how you got into these uh, bearing witness, the bearing witness work. Right. Uh, well, just to be clear, uh, in my Shambhala Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I'm a senior Dharma teacher, and the, and the Acharyas are the most senior Dharma, senior Dharma teachers in our world, other than uh, the head of our lineage, who's considered the lineage holder. But uh, yeah, but in the Zen tradition, I am a lineage holder. I'm a complete lineage holder and Roshi and Dharma successor of uh, Bernie Glassman. And that really began in prison. Um, I, I had taken monastic vows with... Uh, with a Tibetan uh, teacher, uh, Zeminat Trangu Rinpoche, who came to the prison to provide me with some empowerments to continue with my practice because Trungpa Rinpoche had died at that time. And, and Trangu Rinpoche, who was one of the highest lamas in the Kagyu order of Tibetan Buddhism, agreed to come and, and do that for me. And, and I also took advantage uh, of that opportunity to take monastic vows, novice monastic vows with him. So I was trying, to, and I and I I wanted to try and figure out what would it mean to be a monk in prison, and and to further, yeah, I wanted to figure out if I could figure out how to do that. Maybe that something could be offered to other prisoners, and and so I was trying to. I was really seriously practicing. I mean, my I was practicing like my hair was on fire, <laughs> studying, and but still, but there was no really reminder that of the additional monastic practice, right? Um, and I couldn't wear robes, and and I was I was doing certain things, but. Anyway, somewhere I got the idea, maybe I could wear a rock suit, which is the, the more abbreviated Zen vestment, right? Uh, and I was very aware of that because Trungpa Rinpoche had two rock suits that he sometimes wore over a Western-style suit when he taught. He'd been given one by Maizumi Roshi and one by Suzuki Roshi. And I, at one point, as one of his attendants, used to care for those. And so I was very familiar with that. And so I, I approached one Zen teacher who was on our board of advisors for Prison Dharma Network. And he was kind of, well, you'd have to do this, you'd have to do that. And it was kind of... and uh, and but then I decided to oh then Bernie Glassman ordained the first Zen peacemaker priest who was an actor named Michael O'Keefe and uh, and I saw that I saw so it was the birth of the Zen peacemaker order and I was just really struck by this idea of becoming a fully ordained Buddhist in that sense uh, like a monk but where the ministry was and the work was in the world and in the streets as opposed to uh, going off to a monastery, and I felt I was kind of already doing my monastery time anyway. Uh, um, not that prisons are very like monasteries, even though people sometimes make that connection, but they're very different. Uh, at any rate, Bernie, who just had come, I wrote him a letter. It was a, a little bit of a cheeky letter, I think. I said, you know, I already have a teacher. I'm not, and I have this intuition. I got more practices than I know what to do with. So I'm not really <laughs> looking for something new. But but what you're doing is just completely pierced my heart, and I'd like to be involved. And he just wrote back. He was just a complete yes. He said, absolutely. You know, you're you're already doing the work, and you know, you're the kind of person we'd like to empower further. So let's work together. And and I got permission from my own uh, uh, teacher, Trung Prince had died, but his son was the head of our lineage, so I got his permission. And he said, yeah, go do that. Don't get lost there. Bring it back. <laughs> and and uh, but, he, but 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 he was very supportive. And so I began studying with Bernie. Bernie and his then wife, Jishu, were, were very, very supportive, came to the prison to visit me many times, corresponded with me on a regular basis. I ended up doing Jukai uh, uh, in, uh, in the, the, that's the Zen word for the uh, Bodhisattva vow and uh, ceremony in, in Zen and uh, uh, while in prison. And then I became a, a Zen peacemaker priest while in prison. Uh, took the became a novice priest 
And uh, so all that happened when I was in prison. And then as I got out, I continued my path, both uh, both my Tibetan and Buddhist paths. And I always, as I moved along, I always got permission from the head of my uh, Shambhala Tibetan Buddhist lineage. Uh, and he's always been very supportive of kind of unusual to have this dual path, but it's where I ended up somehow. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was really eager when I got out of prison to, to be able to go do a street retreat. But these are major practices and rites of passage in the Zen peacemaker order. So to be able to do a street retreat and to go to Auschwitz for the bearing witness retreat, which had begun while I was in prison. The first Auschwitz retreat happened in 96. And I was already studying with Bernie and I and I, I got out in 99. So this is all happening around the latter part of my prison time. I started studying with Bernie about 95, I think, 94, 95. And um, so at any rate, eventually I was able to go to uh, do street retreats. And that's been a big part of my life. I've led many, many street retreats. And and uh, and I've been going to Auschwitz every year since I, I couldn't go the first year that I got. They wouldn't let me travel. But then the next year I was able to go. And so I've been going every year since then, except uh, I think one year when my partner was dying. And um, But anyway, I've been... Uh, going uh, almost every year since 2000. So uh, it's, uh, what are we now, 2019. I've probably been there like 17 times or something. And we'll be going back this November. And um, and I helped start the first Brain Witness Retreat in Rwanda uh, with my colleague uh, uh, Roshi Genrogan and, and uh, some other friends, uh, Michael and Cassidy Brady. And and uh, we did two of those retreats uh, in Rwanda, and we t- and then turned that back over to Bernie, and he'd led a couple more in Rwanda. And uh, and there's now Native American, there's Bering Witness retreats happening in the Black Hills with Native American peoples. And I'm working with some colleagues to, uh, African-American colleagues and others, to uh, develop the first Bering Witness retreat around slavery and the Jim Crow era and mass incarceration here in this country. So we're working on that. So that bearing witness work has become a, a big part of my life. And and uh, I think it's really important to go bear witness to the incredible human tragedies that have happened, especially genocide and 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 uh, all the ethnic cleansing and genocidal um, tragedies that continue in our world and have, have happened historically. And because by facing the truth of these things, you know, it's, I think the only way to prevent it from happening and uh, and it's a very, it's very incredibly transformative to go face these things and not run away, not run away into some kind of mental box to put it in, or some philosophy, or some religious idea, or not run away physically, but just go there and be there and and have that place like being at Auschwitz Birkenau. It just takes you through a journey if you don't run away. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Acharya Fleet Mall encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by visiting his website, windhorseseminars.com, and by picking up a copy of his new book, Radical Responsibility. You can find the website for that book at radicalresponsibilitybook.com. I'll also post a number of links within the show notes to find out more about his work. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, Simply visit quantumzenonline.org 
there is a promo code on the homepage for a free month. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.